For nearly 600 years, Europe had a feudal economy. Landowners provided land and protection to tenants in exchange for their loyalty and labor, which generally meant farming that land and serving in war. This system created extremely rigid social classes and huge inequalities. This system was wonderful for those few landowning lords on top and crushingly difficult for the vast majority of people who labored as poor farmers. Starting in the 14th century, things began to change. Plagues, wars, urbanization, and global trade all contributed to a more capitalist economy. By the 19th century, those at the bottom were beginning to gain more power. Or so it seemed. But as industrial capitalism spread throughout Europe, German philosopher Karl Marx observed an all-too-familiar sight. This new capitalist economy was creating a rigid social hierarchy similar to that of the feudal system. Marx, together with another German philosopher named Friedrich Engels, wrote about this class dynamic in the 1848 text, The Communist Manifesto. As an analysis or description, let's put it that way, of the way uh, market economies generate inequality, it's still remarkably fresh. Marx believed that when markets are left to themselves, they generate huge inequalities. In the text, he argues that capitalism isn't sustainable and will eventually lead to its own destruction. He proposed a radical idea, a classless society where all property is publicly owned and each citizen contributes based on their abilities. He called this new economy communism. It's a very straightforward broadside explaining what the program is and why it's necessary. To me, it's like a ticking time bomb. I mean, when you read this text, you feel, yes, this could happen now. Uh, the conditions are not that different now. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Louis Menand to discuss the Communist Manifesto. What was it about his mode of thought that shaped the fields that we now call the social sciences? What was different than the way you know, thinkers before him had thought about society? What's Marxian is the notion that consciousness is a product of material conditions. So material conditions mean the conditions of production. How does our society reproduce itself and how does it produce goods and so on? And that changes historically depending on the basis of production. According to Marx, in an agricultural economy where the basis of production is farming, you get a feudal system in which landowners are at the top and serfs and peasants are at the bottom. In a capitalist economy, where the basis of production is material goods, you have the bourgeoisie at the top and the working class proletariat at the bottom. In order for those economic systems, let's call those systems of class relations between the worker and the owner or the master and the servant, in order to have that system stay in place, you have to produce an ideological superstructure a set of ideas, religion, uh, political theory, uh, art and music that reinforce, make seem natural, the social relations that the economic system requires. So to me, that's a very powerful uh, explanatory handle on why certain ideas and certain kinds of art and religious practices and so forth uh, accompany a particular kind of 
economic and social formation. So to me, that's the key of Marxian sociology. And I've just found it incredibly useful. I, just, I don't buy it in every case and we'll try to reduce things to what we call vulgar, vulgar Marxism, of course. But to me, it's a very powerful way of trying to get a handle on uh, cultural change. Let's discuss the context in which Marx emerges, in which this text in particular emerges. What broadly were the larger changes happening in the countries that Marx is trying to describe? Yeah, so Marx is German. He's from Trier, which is in Western Germany. And he was a revolutionary. Part of the reason he was revolutionary is because he got his PhD in philosophy um, from what's now the University of Berlin, and he couldn't get a job for reasons having to do with a general Prussian crackdown on dissent and on a particular group of intellectuals that he was part of called the Young Hegelians. The Young Hegelians were a leftist group of German intellectuals who were inspired by the work of German philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. They build on Hegel's idea that history progresses through the clashing and combination of ideas that lead toward greater freedom. This theory would end up having a strong influence on Marx. And so he eventually gets kicked out of Germany. He goes to Paris, he gets kicked out of Paris. He goes to Brussels, he gets kicked out of Brussels, goes back to Paris. And finally, he ends up in London, which he had no interest in going to, but it was the only safe place for him. And he spent the rest of his life uh, living in outside London, in Hampstead. And that's where he wrote the Communist Manifesto. So the Communist Manifesto was published in February 1848. And 1848 was the year of revolution in Europe, not in Britain, but in continental Europe. And to everybody's surprise, because it's not that there weren't revolutionaries hoping to have a revolution, but it was not exactly planned. Revolutionary movements sprung up in places like France and Germany, um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and those were Marx's people. Those are the people he had worked with when he was living on the continent. He was an influential voice in the radical thought and journalism, and he wrote he and Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto partly as a response to this extraordinary revolutionary moment. So the text has enormous power as arising out of a moment of great hope for people who had hoped to overthrow capitalism. Tell us a little bit more about these 1848 revolutions. I mean, who, who were these revolutionaries and what did their efforts look like? They did not all, were not all in the same page, and they didn't all think of themselves as communists. That's what Marx thought he was. But they were opposed to industrial capitalism. In the early 19th century, many people had no choice but to work in huge factories. The pay was very low, and the work conditions were often miserable and dangerous. Nobody knew how to fix this. Nobody knew how to regulate this. This was just the way the market worked. That was Marx's whole point. This is how the system works. It's not that People who own factories are cruel, even though he described them as cruel. Um, it's just that they have to do that to compete. If you start paying your workers more than subsistence, you're going you're gonna to outprice uh, yourself in the market. So the radical thinkers were people who grasped the brutal nature of industrial capitalism in this early phase, in the first half of the 
19th century uh, and <clears throat> thought that the way to solve that was by a violent revolution. And that arises out of Hegel. So in Britain, they didn't think that way. In Britain, the general approach to the problem was through legislation, uh, particularly through enfranchisement, which helped to kind of mute the radical impulses there. But on the continent, that wasn't the case at all. And on the continent, these very, it, it is sort of throwing up barricades and so forth. It was a very, excuse me, half-assed operation because they didn't have an army. You know, They had some muskets. So they were easily put down. All the revolutions on the continent were suppressed. And instead, there was a reaction and a re revival of the old monarchical system. That's what happened in France. In the French Revolution of 1789, the working class violently overthrew the monarchy, chopping off the heads of King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette. This violent revolution became the European model for replacing the old social and economic order. In the revolutions of 1848, much of the European middle class was in the process of trying to overthrow the old monarchical system. There's a clash between the old system, which is now outmoded, which needs to be rejected and transcended, and the new system, which in order to come into place, has to move aside the old ruling class. In France, the old ruling class is the aristocracy, of course, and the new class is the bourgeoisie. And their principles of the revolution, uh, fraternity, equality, and liberty, are the principles of bourgeois uh, capitalism. So that effort was hijacked by Napoleon, who then appropriated those slogans in the name of building an empire, which is not exactly what the French Revolution was supposed to be about, um, and it became a tragedy. So in 1848, what happened was that when the revolutionary uprisings were put down, uh, a relative of a descendant of Napoleon, Louis Napoleon, became head of the state, president of France, and ultimately made himself emperor. So there's a very famous saying of Marx's, actually it was written by Engels, but Marx gets credit for it. The first time is tragedy, the second time is farce. And what he meant was in 1789, what happened to the principles of the French Revolution, which of course he supported, were turned into a tragedy by Napoleon. And what happened in 1848 was even worse, it was a farce, because Louis Napoleon was a joke, and yet he became emperor of France until 1870. So those revolutions, in short, were, were very short-lived. Um, they were suppressed, and they caused a reaction. Instead of having a progressive effect on continental uh, nations, it had a regressive effect. What was the exact motivation of writing the manifesto? Why was it necessary to articulate in a concise way communist beliefs? The manifesto was commissioned by the Communist League, I think, so they commissioned Marx and Engels to write this document in December of 1847, and then they Marx wrote it in January. I think he was the principal author, though often Engels wrote a lot of stuff that Marx is credited with, and it was published in February in London in German. Um, so I think the commission was simply seize the moment, explain what's going on in uh, on the continent, uh, and explain what the communist solution is, which is what the Communist Manifesto is. Now, the reason it's, just to get back to your original question, the reason it's an important document, it's, it's the one place where all of Marx and Engels' thought is put into a short uh, text. The text is, the original pamphlet was 23 pages. Um, it gets a little longer because additions are made, but 
um, it's very short. And in that text, almost everything that Marx and Engels basically thought is compressed and put into very lucid form. So if you want to know what Marxism is, read the Communist Manifesto. It'll tell you right there. Um, so that's what's incredible about it. What are the broad ideas that Marx tries to capture in this document? I think the power of the argument rests on the comparison between 19th century society and uh, feudalism. So in before the French Revolution, the American Revolutions, the economic system was largely based on ownership of land. And the owners of land were able to perpetuate their ownership by inheritance. Um, and the result was an extremely stratified class system in which it was not impossible, but next to impossible to transcend the conditions of your birth. So the, everybody knew that it was very difficult for uh, anybody to step outside of the class system or to penetrate it beyond the social class that their birth consigned them to. Um, and the top of the whole system was the king, the monarch, and a certain ideology, Marx would call, Engels would call it a superstructure, was put in place or arose to justify as natural this extreme set of social hierarchy in which the king had virtually everything and the people at the bottom had nothing. And so ideas like the divine right of kings or the great chain of being locked into place the system and made people feel it's natural that I have nothing, or it's natural that I own property and can tell workers what I want them to do or not. It's natural that I have this power, or it's natural that I don't. And when you think it's natural, you, there's, you can't change it because you think this is just the way the world is meant to be. So he says, our system is just as hierarchically rigid, just as oppressive, as the feudal system, which everybody agrees was an abomination, right? Ours is also an abomination, but we don't agree that it is because we think it's natural. Why do we think it's natural? Because ideologies arise, like the ideology of the market, that tell us this is the best way to organize the economy. We have no choice. This is right. Therefore, if you end up as a proletarian, that's your fate. But that's the way this system works. We can't fix that. He's saying we can fix that because now for the first time in history, Men and women can see with clear eyes their social relations to others. They realize they're not obfuscated by a lot of ideology because bourgeois capitalism doesn't like ideology. They realize their social condition of oppression and their, their exploitation by the capitalists, and they can rise up to overthrow capitalism and become the new ruling class. The working class will be the new ruling class. And when that happens, the class system will disappear. This is what Marx referred to as the communist revolution. Once the working class proletariat rises to power, they will be led by avant-garde intellectuals who will destroy all remains of the old ruling system. When that happens, he says, all classes will disappear 
and there will be a new system, communism. The goal of the communist revolution was to establish a dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, could you describe their, their vision of utopia? What, what did that classless society look like and how were people's needs met? Um, you know, what were the beatific visions that, that they had? So the dictatorship of the proletariat is temporary. I mean, it, it, it ends up not being temporary in the Soviet Union, but, but it's supposed to be temporary because once the working class is the ruling class, there's no need for classes anymore. The vision that Marx had, which sounds very fanciful, but actually is very powerful, is that in a communist or classless society, people would choose to do whatever work they wanted you would not be slotted into a occupation or a task uh, as part of a general system of production, for example, uh, a factory. So in a factory, let's say a car factory, um, the, there's a division of labor uh, on an assembly line in which one group of people, let's say, puts the steering wheel on every car I don't know anything about cars. I'm making this up. But one group, one group of people puts, you know, the whatever, the pistons on the car, whatever. And each uh, group, each worker in those groups is skilled at one particular task. By dividing up manufacture into these specific tasks by the division of labor, you increase production enormously. Instead of having one person make the entire car, you have a bunch of people making each making a part of the car. So modern economies work on the principle of the division of labor. We don't nobody does all of it, everybody has a little piece of it. So what Marx and Hegel both thought was divisions of labor is inhumane because it alienates workers from the product of their labor. So the person who puts the steering wheels on the car is has no real relationship to the finished car because they just all they related to is one tiny piece of that car. So in a class of society, Marx says, I can't remember exactly the examples, but you could be a fisherman in the morning, be a shepherd in the afternoon, and be a critic at dinner time. You can choose what you want to contribute to the social whole, to the group, uh, according to your uh, abilities. So from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs is the great slogan. And you can do that in a class of society because nobody's exploiting your labor. You're, you're free to apply your labor where you want to. Therefore, you're no longer alienated from the product of your work. And that is utopia. Marx had a strong vision for how a classless society would be established and what would be expected of its citizens. But he rarely described what life would actually be like in such a society. This was a problem for those countries that adopted Marxism and became communists like China and the Soviet Union because there wasn't really any clear map for what this new society was supposed to look like. I think there's the main reason for this is that it follows logically from Marx's thought, which is that if in order to overcome the system of bourgeois capitalism, you have to basically destroy everything. That includes all the ideas and values of bourgeois society, all the norms 
that have come to seem natural or the way things ought to be in that social formation. So you have to basically burn all that down. And then when you burn all that down, who knows what what the next world will look like because we have no way of guessing right now what a class of society, what the norms of a class of society will be. So the phrase that leftists thought uses for this is up for grabs. You know, when the revolution comes, after the revolution, everything will be up for grabs. Well, that's great, but when you actually have a revolution, like the Bolshevik Revolution, it's not so clear what it's supposed to look like. Same thing happened in the French Revolution. It wasn't quite clear what they were supposed to do once they cut everybody's head off. So, um, so we speculate when we say, well, this is what a class of society ought to be like, because Marx deliberately didn't really go there. The thing I, the quote I mangled for you about being a shepherd in the morning and being a fisherman or whatever, is about the only thing he ever said about what the new system would look like. What happened when this came out um, in 1848, and who who was reading it? What was what was the immediate reception? Uh, zero. Uh, <laughs> so it was published in German in London. So the people who would have read it were people in Marx's circle who were German exiles. Um, it, the plans were to publish translations of it in all the European languages. And I think a few uh, translations were made and printed, but but not very many. It sold, I think, about 1,000 copies in 1848 when it was came out, and then it disappeared. But like a lot of Marx's work that became very important in the 20th century, it didn't have a big impact in the 19th century. It really wasn't until after Marx's death, he died in 1883, that that Marx's thought kind of began to circulate in ways that ha were meaningful. And the person who was crucial to that was Engels, who, who survived Marx and who got a lot of Marx's work that was in manuscript or had kind of fallen through the cracks into print. And by then, by the end of the 19th century, there was a real working class movement um, that uh, this material was important to. Then it gets taken up in Germany, and it gets taken up in Russia, and then it, of course, becomes the ideology of Bolshevism. The Bolsheviks were a radical leftist group founded by Vladimir Lenin and Alexander Bogdanov in 1912. They were the voice of the Russian working class. They were heavily influenced by Marxist thought and believed in a one-party state and the dictatorship of the proletariat. In 1917, they overthrew the Russian government and established Soviet Russia and eventually the Soviet Union. I would say, you know, one big influence that the Communist Manifesto has is it gives a, a rationale for the dictatorship of the proletariat. That's very important because you would think that dictatorship of the proletariat just reproduces a kind of social hierarchy of the kind that communism is trying to do away with. But for Marx, for Lenin, and even for Stalin, I think, and for Trotsky, it's a temporary phase, in a necessary but temporary phase in historical development that will ultimately lead to uh, universal socialism. How is Marx alive in our society with the questions that we face every day? So in the 1930s, Marxist thought and leftist thought generally was pretty consistent with Marxist idea of the working class revolution. That's what American communists thought. That's what people who were fellow travelers believed. Um, and then after 1945, there's a shift which is 
instead of looking at uh, social conditions in which some kind of working class revolution is imagined as a way of getting out of the capitalist uh, mess, people start looking to culture. I guess there are three main European, essentially European schools of thought that produce theories of cultural Marxism. One is the Frankfurt School, which looked on and analyzed bourgeois culture as a system of reinforcement of inequitable social relations. A second was situationism, and then uh, British, the British New Left, people like Stuart Hall uh, in the late 1960s, um, and the American New Left, which in, in many ways was imitating what the British New Left was doing. And uh, for those uh, radicals, what needed to be changed was the way people thought. Consciousness needed to be raised. Um, and uh, if we could get people to realize that their ideas about the justice of existing social relations were based on illusions, ideological illusions that were produced by bourgeois society and bourgeois culture and entertainment culture and mass culture generally, if we could get people to see their real social relations properly, then that would affect a kind of revolution. This was exactly what Marx did not believe. So cultural Marxism is flips Marx on his head, as Marx had flipped Hegel on his head. And it's, it's essentially Hegelianism. It's basically, it's, it's about a clash of ideas. It's about overcoming bad ideas with better ideas. If we can succeed in revolutionizing consciousness, the superstructure, if we can blow up the old superstructure as, as situationism tries to do, then we can produce this new world. Um, so that's very powerful in the 60s. But then by the 70s and 80s, it becomes clear that one thing that capitalism is really good at is appropriating cultural dissent. <laughs> they create T-shirts or academic programs or, you know, they, they manage to market it. Um, they create a market for it. They, they commodify it. It takes a sting out of it. It just becomes part of the way things are. So it, cultural Marxism turned out to, be, I believe, to be a dead end. But, you know, where there's no reality check. It's just we just think, you know, we could just think what we want to think. Fine. But that's not changing the world. So I think that's one issue. The second issue is that we're, have, we're going through a revolutionary moment right now. That's what Brexit is. That's what Trump is. There's a group of people who think that they are being oppressed in some way by, quote unquote, the elites. That's our name for the ruling class today. Everybody uses it. That's what we mean by it. They're having their moment. They're saying, we don't want to be part of this. They don't know what they want, I think, really. They just want to blow it up. Um, and that's kind of... That's kind of where Marx said things would end. It just didn't think he, they would end being blown up in this particular way. This is what the, nobody thought this is what the end of neoliberalism will look like, but this is what it looks like. Did he think progress was inevitable, or did he maintain uh, an acknowledgement that you know it basically is up to human agents and deciding together? Yes. So yeah, he, he was an Hegelian. So he thought that's what he thought, but he also thought, and this is the hard part to. This is the part where most people sign off on Marx, I mean, or get off the train, including me. 
is which is that in order for in order for history to realize itself, it needs a vanguard of advanced thinkers who will push it in the right direction. And it's not just going to happen. I mean, it will happen, but you could speed it up, <laughs> as it were. And that's what creates the revolutionaries like Lenin. And that does tend to lead to dictatorship. So these people don't necessarily believe that they're trying to acquire power for its own sake. But in the end, that's what they do. Um, so the one of the obvious weak points of the whole theory of inevitable historical change is this notion of the temporary dictatorship of the proletariat. It just doesn't end up being temporary because there's nothing. it's not quite clear what would replace it. Although Marx didn't give a clear explanation of how society would function once communism replaced capitalism, he did open the door for the possibility of new thought. We can boil Marx's thought down to the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> so that's what that's what society that's what society wants you to think. Pay attention to the illusion of the wizard. Don't pay attention to the guy behind the curtain who's actually doing everything. But understand that just because what things are this way, uh, it doesn't mean they are inevitably this way or have to be this way. They're always fixable. That's what I think. That's what liberal education tries to teach students. You may like the way things are, fine, but understand this is a reason why they're this way. And if you don't like the way things are, no God's going to strike you dead if you try to change them. History has proven that although social systems may change, the tendency to recreate oppressive hierarchies of wealth and power is incredibly strong. Marx and Engels recognized this and longed for a new social system that would break this cycle. A society where everyone would be equal and celebrated for their own unique abilities. And although they didn't explain how this utopia would work in reality, and the failures of the Soviet Union show the risks of communism in practice, their theories continue to inspire millions of people to fight for a world with less domination and more equality. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.